and 15 through 17, and Exodus 2, 1 through 6. Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we are. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Python and Ramesses, for Pharaoh. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. The word of the Lord. Well, this morning we're beginning a new series of messages that'll take us through the rest of the summer for the next seven weeks. We're looking at, if you haven't guessed already, the life of Moses. Um, the Moses story is one of the most important stories in the Bible. It's the foundational story for the Hebrew Bible. It's the defining story for the Jewish people today. And it is the backdrop for everything we see in the Gospels through Jesus Christ. Not only that, but it's a story, of course, that continues to speak to generation after generation after generation. And so the 19th century American slaves wrote songs from the Moses story, hymns and Negro spirituals about Moses and God delivering the people and setting them free. It was a reflection of their own desires of what God and their hopes of what God might do in their own lifetime. Uh, you might remember that on the night before Dr. King was assassinated, he preached a sermon from the story of Moses, and he said, I have been to the mountaintop, and I have seen the promised land. I might not get there with you now, but as a people, we will get there. This Moses story is a huge 
story. You can even go to the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. and, and see at the top of the colonnades a, an, um, a statue of Moses as the great lawgiver in the, of the Supreme Court. We don't exactly follow it, but at least we have the symbol. Nevertheless, um, so here is a satellite image of, of Egypt, um, the Nile River that goes right down through the center of our church, um, down through the middle of Egypt, and of course, um, at the north end of the Nile River is the the Nile Delta, and it flows into the Mediterranean Sea. Over to the east, you see the, uh, the canal that leads into the Red Sea, and then further east over there is Midian. And Moses will spend the first 40 years of his life in Egypt, and then the next 40 years of his life as a shepherd in Midian when he flees um, to live in the desert. And he won't even begin his ministry until he's 80. Uh, and so it's a fascinating story, um, and, and we'll return to maps as we kind of trace where the people go. Um, throughout. When you think about Egypt, like today, Egypt, what comes to your mind? Maybe a camel, or actually most of us, when we think about Egypt, we think about the pyramids, right? Um, I had the privilege of studying in Egypt for a few months when I was in college, and I uh, study abroad, and, and I studied two things, ancient civilization and geology. Um, and it was wonderful. These are the Giza pyramids that are um, kind of just south of the delta on the west bank of the Nile River. They were built a thousand, about a thousand years before Moses lived, maybe 1,200 years before Moses lived. So 2600 to 2500 BC and is when the great Giza pyramid was built. And it became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, for thousands of years, it was the tallest structure on the face of the planet until the 1800s. It's 481 feet tall. And of course, the, the great question or great anomaly is how in the world did an ancient civilization build a structure like this with their, basically their bare hands and whatever tools that they could come up with? And so these pyramids were already here when Moses was roaming the land. Moses grew up in the shadow of the pyramids. If you've ever seen any of the pyramids, then you and Moses have looked at the same site from thousands of years apart. Uh, as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all would have seen the pyramids, as did anybody who had been to Egypt. And I think that this has something important to teach us about the story of Moses and the Exodus, because they serve as a backdrop for what Moses would have had to deal with. Here's an image of the Sphinx, which is the face of the Pharaoh Khafra. Um, if we can pull that up. And Khafra was buried in the tomb in the pyramid behind, uh, behind the Sphinx. And so these pyramids were essentially tombs, grand tombs to the great pharaohs. By the time Moses was living and walking on the face of the earth, they weren't building pyramids anymore. They were building temples, great big temples uh, for, to the gods, dedicated to the gods, but really highlighting the Pharaoh. And so 300 miles south of Giza, um, of the Giza pyramids, which were near the ancient city of Memphis or where Cairo is today, 
300 miles south of there is the city of Luxor, which was the ancient city of Thebes. And it was the capital city of Egypt for many periods throughout Egypt's history at various points. And so here's an image of the Karnak Temple, just a fraction of the temple. Uh, of, the, of the temple. It's, this is the largest temple structure in the entire world ever built. And even though the temple is dedicated to the gods, if you were to go and visit this temple, all throughout you see images of the pharaohs. You see petroglyphs of the pharaohs winning victoriously in battle and ripping heads off of animals and things like that. And then you see these great statues all throughout of the pharaoh. And quite possibly, we can't verify this, but quite possibly the pharaoh of the Exodus seated on this throne here. And what these temples said were simply this. The pharaoh is a really big deal. Don't mess with the pharaoh. The pharaoh is, at the time of Moses, the most powerful person on the face of the earth at the apex of Egypt's empire. And the reason that this is important as a backdrop for the story is because this story is the story of a battle that takes place between an 80-year-old stuttering sheep herder and the most powerful human being on the face of the earth. This most powerful person who dedicated all of these temples to himself with victorious battle scenes is going to be brought into battle with Moses, ultimately defeated in battle, and the slaves under his rule will be set free. You might remember what happens right before the Exodus story. That's the Joseph story. Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, and about 150 years before Moses was born, uh, Joseph was elevated to prime minister of Egypt. And as the story of Genesis continues then into the book of Exodus, we read this. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, they will join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. So here's what's happening here. The most powerful person on the face of the planet who decorated all his buildings with his victories in battle, is scared. He's like a scared little boy in the face of this growing population of kind of rural folk. Uh, they're a minority population in Egypt, but he's afraid of these people, and his fear then leads him to come to a conclusion. And the conclusion is that we have to oppress them, right? We have to enslave them so that, they don't, so that we don't have to be afraid of them anymore. And then he convinces his people that they have to be afraid of them and enslave them and oppress them. And so the Scripture says the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread you see the hand of God at work already in the very beginnings of this story. So that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on them and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. 
They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. So what does this have to do with us today? If I could just pause for a moment. I'm convinced that every part of the story has something to say to us, has something to teach us. So what does this part of the story have to teach us? Well, part of what it has to teach us is that as human beings, every one of us has a little bit of paranoia within us. We are naturally paranoid just a little bit. There's a fear factor inside of us. There's a Pharaoh who lives in every one of us. And that fear factor can cause us to be afraid of people who are different, people who look different, people who think different, people who act different, their lifestyle is different, they speak a different language than we do, they have a different religion, they talk differently, they dress differently, they have different living quarters, different cultural norms, different family practices, and we can become afraid of them because what if they change us, right? And it doesn't take very much, especially on the part of a leader, to convince the population that they should be afraid. And not only be afraid of them, but that because of your fear, you should do something, act out of that fear to make sure that they stay in their place and they don't actually become a threat. It's a good thing this doesn't happen in the modern world. Of course, the most obvious modern world example of this is what happened in Nazi Germany less than a hundred years ago, maybe in the lifetime of some of the people in our congregation still. And you have this, you have this leader who's, who's coming to power, Hitler, and he's looking for a scapegoat. And the Jews become the scapegoat for all of the woes in Germany after World War I. And pretty soon he becomes fixated on the Jews, fixated on them, and he begins to make the case that, that, that they should be afraid of them, and they control the banking system. Who knows what else they're con- going to control, and they might come and, and fight against us and take away our power and our culture, and so they started to spread propaganda around to instill this fear in the people. Propaganda like this. This is an image of a documentary that was uh, made and sent around to instill fear, an anti-Semitic documentary to encourage fear of the other, fear of the Jews. And it makes us afraid of the person who is Jewish. We need to be fearful about them. And so we, they tried to demonize them. And then, and then they moved beyond demonizing them to dehumanizing them. And then they started to call them things like rodents and insects. And therefore, what we need to do is eradicate them because they're a parasite to our culture. And then came the final solution, eliminate all Jews until they're extinct. And again, that was less than 100 years ago. And we've seen su- maybe more subtle forms of this ever since then even, and even in recent years when it comes to our, our Mexican neighbors or when it comes to uh, Muslim refugees or whatever, whatever the other might be for you. It might be the uh, Republican or the Democrat or the ideology. And, and we have a word for this kind of fear. It's xenophobia. You've heard of this, you know about this. We can find ourselves so easily afraid. And there are people who actually manipulate and mastermind fear in our lives. 
politicians do this during their campaigns on both sides. They want you to fear the other opponent. They want you to fear the policies that the other opponent's proposing, and they want you to fear the ideology that the other opponent is proposing. The media does this to get viewers, you know, tapping into our anxiety because, boy, will anxiety keep us returning to the news, won't it? And then, uh, not only that, but, of course, even preachers do this, too to try to manipulate their congregations, to try to get money out of them. It's horrible, it's a terrible thing, and it's not helpful. Here's the point of all this. When we look at this story, the whole 400 years of the oppression of the Hebrews had everything to do with the insecurity and fear of this one powerful person who didn't have the right character, right? So we've got to be careful about our fears, what we do with our fears. Again, there's a Pharaoh in every one of us, and we've got to become aware of our fears because by nature we are fearful, and people can prey on our fears and make us look at the other and be afraid, and then we can act out of those fears, and we can do horrible things in the name of national security or personal security. And the Bible says that we are to meet fear with love, Perfect love casts out all fear, the scripture says. We may feel fear, but we choose love. So let's not be people who act out of our fears. In the New Testament, it's interesting, Paul writes in, in Romans 12, the imperative for the New Testament church, the New Testament people of God, is extend hospitality to strangers. That's what Paul says, that we are to not be afraid of strangers, but extend hospitality to strangers. And the word there for hospitality to strangers is the word philoxenia. It's another compound word. It's kind of the, the opposite of xenophobia. Philo means love, and xenia means the other or the stranger. So you've heard of Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia. That means brotherly love or love of your kin. And that comes naturally. You always kind of love the people who are like you. And of course, xenophobia comes naturally to fear those who are different from us, but what Paul commands us to do is something radically different than both of those things, which is love of the stranger, love extending hospitality to the stranger, philo xenia. Uh, and this is exactly what we see with the Hebrew midwives. And so the story goes on, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah, and the other, Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, she shall live. And so here's what Pharaoh commanded these midwives to do, to go and as they were going to help the, in the delivery process, their command was to go and tell the obstetricians to kill the babies right when they come out of the birth canal to, so as to stage a kind of a stillbirth or a death that took place during the birth canal, right? Process, during the delivery process. And so Shipra and Pua are commanded to do that, and guess what? They can't do it. They couldn't do it. And... You know, um, telling these obstetricians, they, they, they didn't have the heart to do it. And so Pharaoh then wanted to know, okay, well, why are these babies then still being born? You know, and, and what, why is this happening? And what did Shipra and Pua do at that point? What did they say to Pharaoh? They lied to him. 
right? They lied to him. They, they said the Hebrew women are so strong that they deliver their babies before we even get there. And so they're, they're, we, can't, we can't fake their deaths, they said. And now I want to just give a little footnote on Christian ethics. We're told not to lie, right? We're told not to lie. But sometimes two biblical ethics come in conflict with each other. And so on the one hand, we're told in the Ten Commandments we're not supposed to lie. And then there's one, of course, that is protect innocent life. And so what do you do when two biblical commands or Christian ethics conflict with each other? You have to ask the question, which one is more important? And which one is more consistent with the whole counsel of Scripture? And here, Shipra and Pua got it right. They knew that the right thing to do was to spare these children. And so they lied to the Pharaoh, and God blessed them for that. God blessed them for lying to the Pharaoh. I want you to notice this. It says this, But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. And so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Isn't it interesting that we don't know the name of the Pharaoh? We talked about how the Pharaoh was the most powerful person on the planet. There are, there are pyramids uh, around the Pharaohs and temples and whatnot, but we don't know the name of this Pharaoh. And so that means that we don't know whether the Exodus took place in the 1400s or in the 1200s BC. The Pharaoh is never named. But these two lowly Hebrew midwives. 3,300 years later, we still know their names, Shipra and Pua. And they had the audacity to disobey the Pharaoh. Do you know what this is? This is the first example in the Bible of civil disobedience. The second example of civil disobedience is what Pharaoh's daughter does. And the third example of civil disobedience is what Moses will do with the Egyptian who is beating a Hebrew. What is civil disobedience? Civil disobedience is when authority says, do this, and a person of faith says, well, I actually hear you. I recognize you as an authority. I hear you telling me to do this, but I serve a higher authority that I have surrendered to, and that higher authority will not allow me to follow your command, and so I'm going to disobey you in order to obey the command of God. That's uh, civil disobedience, and it's, that's what uh, Rosa Parks did when she refused to get off her seat on the bus. It's what uh, Bonhoeffer did in, in Nazi Germany. It's what um, Desmond Tutu did in, in South Africa. There is a higher authority, and there is a place where civil disobedience happens and is called for from the scriptures. And I think there's a time in every one of our lives when we're confronted with conflicting ethics. I had a friend once whose boss told him to go and do something, and he felt that what his boss was asking him to do was wrong. And he went back to the boss and he said, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I hear that you want me to do this, but I, I can't do it in good conscience. And the boss said, I don't care, do it anyway. And so my friend had to quit. He quit his job, six-figure salary, went unemployed for a couple of years. Sometimes we, we have situations like that, and we have to make these kinds of choices. And a question for us then is, would we have the courage 
that Shipra and Pua had on that day to say, I, I can't do this even though you've asked me because I believe it's wrong. And that's a powerful witness that we see in this story. Well, after the midwives let these babies live and they lied about everything to the Pharaoh, then the Pharaoh realizes that he has to sort of ratchet it up a little bit and he's got to do something more severe. And so he gives this general order to all, uh, to all the Egyptians, this horrendous order that every boy that is to be born, okay, they make it out of their womb, fine. Then I want you to uh, throw the boy into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. So that means that when you see a Hebrew mother holding her baby, rocking her baby, nurturing her baby, what I want you to do is go and rip that baby out of her hands and throw it into the river to die. And that becomes the context for Moses' birth. So listen to what happens next. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Can you put yourself in the shoes of Moses' mother for a moment? Can you imagine how much she loved her baby? Three months she had him, and of the last thing she wanted for this baby was to die. And she couldn't think of any better answer to give this baby a chance at hope than to build a little basket with with some waterproofing and to place him into the safest part of the river, the calmest part where the reeds are, with the hope and the unceasing prayer that maybe, just maybe, somebody might walk by and see that baby and have compassion and not throw it in the river and give it a chance at life. But she had to let that child go. Can you imagine? And so what happens next is that Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter, comes to bathe in the Nile and she sees a basket and she draws it out of the water and she finds a baby inside and her heart is touched and she adopts this child. So here's a, a point that I think from this part of the story caused me to wonder first how many in our congregation or how many here today were adopted. How many have been adopted in our congregation? Maybe a few, maybe a dozen. And we don't always know what's going on in the life of a mother or father who feels they have to give their child up for adoption. But in the first adoption story in the Bible, that's what this is, the first adoption story in the Bible, we see that Moses' mother's heart is breaking as she desperately trying to save the life of her son. And this was the only answer that she could possibly find to give him a future with a hope. And then we look at Pharaoh's daughter. She worships the pagan gods. She's raised in the palace. She is extremely privileged. And her father is the ruler of everything. And she knows what he said to do, but she sees this child 
And what she could have said was, here's a Hebrew boy in this basket. Somebody call child services. Or, or here's a boy in this basket. You know, my father said to throw the boys into the water, so take this baby and toss him into the river. But she doesn't do that, does she? That's what we would have expected in the story. But instead, being a good teenage girl, she hears what her dad says to do, and she does the exact opposite. <laughs> no, her heart was moved with compassion, and she acted on her compassion, not on her fear or her father's fear, and she becomes the hero in the story. And so Pharaoh's daughter becomes the savior of the savior of Israel. Isn't that amazing? Had she not acted on her compassion, had she said, oh, someone else will take care of this, and raised him where he would grow up to get the best education in the known world and the best leadership training in the known world, if she hadn't done that, Israel would have continued in slavery. God's purposes would have been thwarted and stopped at this one particular moment, but instead she gives into her compassion and she takes the child home with her. And now I think not just about those of you who were adopted, but those of you also who have chosen to adopt other people in your lives, other children. Some of you have been foster parents. Some of you are adoptive parents and you've adopted children and you did the same thing. You saw a child and you had compassion and you said, I want to give this child a chance at life, a chance at hope, and it's not somebody else's problem, it's mine. I'm going to respond to that call. In a couple of weeks, you're going to hear the testimonies from Esther and Paris, our wonderful interns from Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, here is a picture of their adoptive parents, Stephen and Rosemary in the middle, and and Stephen and Rosemary's two biological uh, kids, Victor and Joy, on either side, who are Paris and Esther's siblings. In 2005, Stephen and Rosemary had a, had a heart for uh, a couple of kids, a couple of boys who were growing up in the slum of uh, Mathare, and they were abandoned, and so they took them in. And... Um, and they, two led to four, led to 10, led to 12. They now, ha they had to declare themselves an orphanage, um, but they didn't want to use the term orphanage, so they called themselves a children's home where Stephen and Rosemary are now the mother and father of over 120 children and with an entire school from preschool all the way to high school. And, and, uh, and many of them who have graduated from high school, maybe 18 or so, Esther, living with mom and dad um, in while they're in college, and now they're pursuing graduate studies here in the United States. And would that have happened if Rosemary had not said, I need to step up? Where would Esther and Paris be today? And so one question I have for us is, what is God calling us to do to help young people in our community, to help young children have a better chance at life. Maybe God is calling you to join a foster care ministry or simply sponsor a child with world vision or even adopt a kid or mentor some kids in our congregation. At the very least, every single one of us who are members 
are called to be spiritual parents and grandparents to every single one of the children in our congregation. That's just what it means to be the church. And that's what we saw on full display last week, I think, the beauty of people serving and caring for our kids. We don't know much about Moses' childhood, except that he grew up as this adopted son. He had Hebrew blood, and he grew up in Pharaoh's palace with the best of everything, the finest food and the finest training and the finest blah, 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 all these things. According to Luke in the book of Acts, Moses spent the first 40 years of his life growing up as a Hebrew in Pharaoh's house. But can you imagine the inner conflict that that must have created for him to know that your people, all your people, your family are being enslaved? I mean, first he was supposed to be thrown away at birth, But then he's taken in and he's given all this privilege, but all of his people are being enslaved. Every day he had probably heard something about the Hebrew slaves struggling to survive among the harsh taskmasters of the Pharaoh. But you can imagine, so you can imagine the conflict. And so what happens next in the story, I'm just going to point forward to next week. If you keep reading at verse 11, Moses grows up, he's about my age, around 40, and he snapped. He snaps. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and saw their forced labor. He witnessed it, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his kinsfolk, and he looked this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. He just couldn't stand to watch the oppression anymore. And so he resorted to violence to, to send a message. Now some say that Moses was simply acting as any pagan would who have grown up, grown up as a pagan prince. A pagan prince was allowed to lose his temper and kill somebody at will and maybe get a slap on the wrist. And so Moses was just simply acting as a pagan would. That's what he knew. He grew up in Pharaoh's house. Others say, no, actually, this is Moses' first heroic act as a Hebrew. He is, he is defending the cause of the powerless. And still others will say that, no, what Moses was doing was he was acting from a place of psychological confusion. He had shoved his unstable upbringing into the corners of denial until it got the best of him and he snapped and he killed this guy. Whatever Moses' motivation was, the point is that he knew his choice was made. He made this choice. According to the author of the book of Hebrews, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God. Wow. Would you rather choose ill treatment with the people of God than to be Pharaoh's daughter? He could have turned a blind eye and gone back to the comforts and privileges of living like a prince, but for whatever reason, he doesn't. And so then Moses is forced to flee into Midian, where he will live the next 40 years of his life as a lowly shepherd. And boy, those years are so important. Sometimes when we find ourselves failed or we made a grave mistake and we find ourselves in the desert wilderness, those are the times when God prepares us for what is next. Moses won't even begin his ministry, according to the text, until he's 80 years old. You know what that means? That means that if you're not dead, you're not done. So the next 40 years of Moses' life will be preparation. His 
soul training where he will deal with his upbringing and he will deal with his training and he will deal with his heart and he will put it all together and God will call him to do something great, right? And that's where we'll pick up the story next week. So just in case you missed it, I want to invite you to uh, meet fear with love. When you find yourself afraid, choose love. I want to invite you to have the courage of Shipra and Pua. And I want to invite you to have the compassion of Pharaoh's daughter. When you see those in need, not to say, I hope someone else takes care of that. But God, what are you calling me to do? And then finally, I want to invite you to trust that God is at work in your story. Even if you find yourself in a desert wilderness, God is preparing you for what is coming next, that which you do not yet know. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, just as you have drawn Moses out of the water, so have you drawn us to yourself in Jesus Christ through the waters of our baptism. So we pray you will give us courage, that you will give us compassion, and that in the desert places of our lives that you will remind us of your promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us, for we belong to you alone. Amen.